0: Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring, and today I am really excited to introduce the very first Optimistic Curmudgeon panel. Uh, On this panel, we've got uh, a returning Optimistic Curmudgeon guest, uh, Shane Trotter, uh, and then joined also by Jeremy Adams and August Mayrat. Uh, I'm going to quickly read some of their many accomplishments. Uh, We've got Jeremy Adams, author of Hollowed Out, a warning about America's next generation, and winner of i didn't get the name right but a prestigious teacher of the year kind of award from california from a previous year uh, i'm sure uh, jeremy can tell us more about that in a moment uh, then of course shane is the author of setting the bar preparing our kids to thrive in an era of distraction uh, dependency and entitlement and august is the a contributing author editor at at least half a dozen different websites Uh, three of which I'll name are The Federalist, Law & Liberty, and Acton. He's also the uh, founder and managing editor for The Everyman. Gentlemen, it's great to be with you all, and I'm really excited about our conversation about school choice. How's everybody doing today?
1: Great.
2: Good. Awesome.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. Well, I I figured we could start with some quick introductions. I know I did just sort of set everybody up, but uh, I'd love it if we could – Go around the horn. Uh, tell us who you are, where you live, what you teach and why on earth do you write? Because, of course, we, we all connected over this common ground of teaching and writing, which is not terribly normal. But we all managed to do a decent amount of
2: it. Well, OK, I'll start. Um, like that ice. <laughs> uh, no, so my name is Auguste Mehron, Um, and I live in North DFW area. I am an AP language and composition teacher. And uh, I, I mean, it's a good point. I mean, you don't have a lot of full-time teachers, freelance writers. Um, I mean, Jeremy and Shane are legit. They got books. But uh, I mean, I got into writing. like I mean, I used to blog and write for people. Uh, and then I would write with my students, um, just doing like kind of practice essays with them. And then finally, I decided to submit some pl- to places that I would read at all the time so and that started up in 2018 where i was really kind of submitting for publication and stuff and so for the past six years or so i've been writing more you know writing articles about pretty much everything obviously education is a big topic and uh yeah school choice is a big one uh that i'll I'll hit on a lot so um, but yeah that's just kind of my background My, my, my name is french so uh my dad is french I come from a big family, um, but th- that's why I have the weird name.
0: Uh, which, and if I am I right, you haven't, there's an E at the end of your name.
2: Yeah, so it's Auguste Miller. Um, uh, but yeah, Auguste. Uh,
3: do, do you, do you, uh, parle francais?
2: Un petit peu, yeah. No, I do. So <laughs> okay. I, I am bilingual.
3: Really? So you're fluent. <laughs> so if I try and, like, uh, you know, just pass off, you know, it's just we. Jeremy Adams, you know, you're not going to be impressed with that at all, is what you're saying.
2: Uh-oh. I'm impressed by everything you do, Jeremy. Okay, well, thank you. <laughs> he,
3: he, I, he, I thought that the pink shirt was kind of a bold choice too. I, I, you know, I knew I knew Shane would do something totally look like he's about to go work out, but I wanted to look kind of,
0: you know, spiffy uh-huh. for it. So, well, well, Jeremy, you are representing uh, California on our, our <laughs> East Coast. And I am. I am. Podcast. So you got to bring the vibrant color. I, I mean.
3: That's true. Oh. That's true. Well, my name is Jeremy Adams. Uh, I've been teaching uh, for 25 years, or as my students like to say, a quarter of a century, uh, at Bakersfield High School. Uh, Bakersfield is a is a small red enclave surrounded by uh, armies and mountains and endless waves of blueness in California. Um, I teach. Uh, I taught uh, AP Government and AP Macroeconomics and World History. Uh, and uh, I've taught at universities uh, for 16 years um, until kind of my, my writing responsibilities kind of got so big, I, I really, uh, it was tough for me to, to kind of moonlight in that way. Um, I, I write uh, simply because I, I think that there's kind of two different outlets of kind of having a meaningful connection as an educator the most intimate organic one obviously is the power of the classroom Mm. Uh, you know you guys in here i admire you so much you guys are all doing extraordinary things i know josh is going into like admin world and shane's going to be an educational entrepreneur Um, but but to me nothing's ever going to replace the magic and the majesty of being in the classroom and making that personal connection and being able to point to a human being and saying i made a difference to that person so you know i will never leave the classroom um, you know, in, until I, until I retire. But I, I write because I do also believe there are really important things that need to be said. Uh, and I believe that uh, to a certain degree, modern teachers are a kind of weird amalgamation of Cassandra uh, and Nostradamus. Um, you know, we see things and say things that people don't want to hear. Um, and we see it before anybody else does. Uh, I get kind of annoyed uh, that, you know, people in the Atlantic or the New York Times are all of a sudden discovering that cell phones are bad for kids. Uh, we knew this back in the dark ages, for goodness sakes. Um, and so I, I do want to be that voice in the wilderness. Uh, and, and I do want to say the things uh, that, that, that sometimes uh, need to be said. Uh, and, I, and I also do believe that writing is an art form. Uh, and, I, and I believe that, you know, art is is something that really cultivates the human soul and raises the human spirit. And to take a part of
0: that, I think, is is why I do it. So I hope that answers the question. Oh, definitely. That's a great answer. I love that idea of the, uh, the majesty of the classroom. I think it's so easy to be stuck in the mundanity of it that it, on the one hand, I go back and forth because there are times when I look at the, I try to think about what's the most significant work I could do. And my brain goes to like, how can I empower dozens of teachers or how could we scale up stuff? But uh, in my teaching journey this year involved uh, stepping in to pick up three sections of 11th grade history at the tail end of the year. And I was reminded that honestly, teaching is why I got into this. (laughs) I did not get into this to uh, plant millions of classical schools all around the world. No, I got into it because I love reading old stuff with kids and seeing them discover that they too can understand the ideas that Locke and Hobbes and Machiavelli and Austin and Goethe and Dickens and Rebele and uh, all of these figures are talking about and see how that transformed their lives. I I love that phrase. Also, I'm going to have a mental picture in my head now of a teacher that's half Cassandra and half Nostradamus. And maybe that's why we're all so grumpy all the time, because we see this stuff coming and no one listens to us. And we're, but we're, we're right, probably fifty to sixty percent of the time about the things we're grumpy about, which is pretty good for a prophecy record, I would guess, yeah for sure, oh yeah Shane, how about you?
1: um first of all, I apologize for my uh, for looking like I was uh <laughs> coming from a workout i That's I actually uh ran workouts our summer strength and conditioning program is going this so i'm uh I'm in the midst of it, then we had over hundred fifty kids this morning, and no end in sight so um. That explains my look, and uh, you luckily don't have to put up with my stench. Um, <laughs> but uh, I am in Mansfield, Texas, which is uh, the south Dallas-Fort Worth area. So uh, August, I, I now know I can't even say your name, so I apologize, is in the north Dallas-Fort Worth area. I'm in the south side. Um, the nice part, okay. <laughs> yeah. but You're in the nice part, did you say?
2: Yeah, yeah. Basically next to Oklahoma. yeah yeah yeah
1: um and uh i my teaching journey has been kind of uh funky uh i was uh i've taught basically everything you can teach uh in uh social studies or uh certainly history uh in texas and then uh gradually i found that the it was very hard to push towards excellence Mm -hmm. um in in the classroom so the avenue to push people towards excellence in texas was in athletics so i i kind of created a i i drafted and pushed and helped create a position as a full-time strength and conditioning coordinator for a campus um and i've been doing that for about seven years now uh and in parallel i wrote my book and uh i've started to work a lot more though with the academic side um i've Put a couple um, proposals in that have helped me. I have uh, uh, two elementary campuses that have jumped on a pilot program I wrote. Um, and we're starting to, you know, I've done a, a, a lot of the uh, educational trainings for the district, kind of taking on a health and PE curriculum lead. Uh, so, kind of a different, uh, uh, you know, a, a big turn from social studies, <laughs> but uh, it's keeping me on the academic side looking at, you know, the TEEKs and, 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 being very involved, um, on the academic side and writing is, uh, what I do to stay sane. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's where I can make the world make sense. Uh, and it's also the, been the best avenue I've ever found for learning. Uh, it's, it, you know, I love to read and I have to do something with all the, all, all, all the new ideas I'm, I'm learning and reading about and the, the, what, what they spur in me. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's how I stay sane. And, uh, hopefully make some sort of impact there it's been uh, it, it, also an amazing avenue for meeting great people like like y'all
0: fantastic uh well shane it's just one quick follow-up and and you can dodge this if you don't want to say anything about him on uh in a public venue uh, but since you are probably the only one of the four of us i'm gonna say who uh is, is in the the world of weightlifting uh in any way any capacity do you have any thoughts on either the strange right way, like far right obsession with weightlifting or, uh, Andrew Tate as a, a bodybuilder weightlifter type person. Both of those things have like weirdly taken up more of my time in the last couple of months, not because I get into weightlifting at all, but because I keep being associated with people who have more connections on the alt-right and the far right. And they seem to also be obsessed with bodybuilding. And I just, I think this is a strange, the strangest confluence of things. Any thoughts there?
1: I I would say that it's it's unfortunate that the ride has <laughs> jumped so far, and I'm not very very into bodybuilding. Um, I, I, I I like the functional. I I like looking at fitness almost philosophically uh, as as kind of a, a pursuit of excellence as a well-rounded person. Um, you know the the ability to ability to be useful. Um, and uh, yeah, so the bodybuilding thing, it doesn't really appeal to me. And Andrew Tate, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I'm not on social media at all. Um, uh, you know, sometimes they plug back in when when I need it here and there, but it's been a while now. And uh, so Andrew Tate, I, I am familiar with the name because... Uh, I. I I open to debate is a podcast I listened to and they were debating something about him recently. Uh, I didn't listen to that one though. So I have nothing right. to say about you. Well, I,
3: I, <laughs> I do, I do want to speak up on behalf of August and myself and say, we're a little offended that you think we're not weightlifters too. Oh. Um, so I, I don't know why you jumped to that conclusion, but, yeah. Yeah, uh, bro, come
2: on, man.
3: Yeah. Come on, <laughs> bro. Come on bro. I bro. Mean, I think, I think, I think Josh, it's pretty clearly a reaction um, to, it's kind of a pendulum effect um, mm. where you get I think one side of the progressive that will tell you that gender is a complete cultural construct um, and, and, and I think that uh, the right is going to respond to that by saying well let's just show you exactly what manliness is and we're going to demonstrate it for you we're going to uh, be as bro male red meat as we can be and we're going to put it in your face about it and I think it's just a reaction to that uh, if I had to guess.
2: Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, Josh. I mean, I, I'm a little baffled by it, and I, I think I think Jeremy's right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's like a, a logical conclusion, right? So first, you're like, "Well, I want to be healthy." Well, no, I want to be manly. Well, okay, <laughs> if you're manly, then you do like you know, lifts, and then you get more concerned about like protein and and, and you know your your routines and all that. Um, I don't know. That, that's one of those things where you know, like the ideological horseshoe. <laughs> Where you have, you know, like the normal people that are on the top of the horseshoe, and then you have like the ends that are coming closer to each other, even though like they're ideologically opposed. And I I know like the right wing bodybuilders get so obsessed with health and your food and all that, that they're basically like these hippies who are also very (laughs) insistent about, you know, getting rid of all the seed oils and all the nasty things in food. And just like, and these are important. I mean, actually, I'm very sympathetic and kind of interested. I like kind of reading this stuff, even though it's, Pretty much out of my wheelhouse. I'm like, huh, okay. um <clears throat> But no, it's kind of interesting. The, and the Andrew Tate thing, like, I'll ask my students about it. Y'all probably have too. Like, the guy just became a thing and then disappeared, like, in a matter of like days. I, I mean, it's like, where did this guy come from? Oh, this guy, you know? And then, well, where'd he go? Well, uh, you know, this guy, he's gone. Now, you know? So, uh, I think Romania or something. So, I don't know. It's kind of wow. weird.
0: Yeah, I think mania is probably a good way to think about it. I, I became aware of him when I was on a debate trip with some high school boys and I was driving the, the. we had two vehicles and yeah, the, uh, there was a, a team mom who was driving the, the vehicle that ended up having all the girls. And then I, of course, me and another male chaperone had the boy's car and uh, two things happened. Our, we rented a car, obviously, just to go on record saying none of us were smoking weed in the car on a school chaperone trip. Uh, but man alive, the previous renter of that car had done a lot of weed in the car. So the boys quickly dubbed our vehicle the Weed Mobile, and then they just started quoting Andrew Tate lines, and they had these monologues basically memorized that they were feeding off of each other, and it was really interesting. And I, I at least try to keep a finger on the pulse of what my students are consuming, culture, pop culture wise, and I have missed this one completely. And it seemed I, I think jeremy i think you're spot on with the the pendulum swinging back reaction idea and maybe august that fits with the uh the the horseshoe theory i mean that they just were there was such a there, there was a there was a right diagnosis with a terrible set of answers to the diagnosis it seemed to me i mean there there, there does seem to be something really clearly masculine about like developing bodily strength and being able to uh clearly take care of other people and exude authority uh, using that to pick up like dozens of women and father, lots and lots of illegitimate children is clearly the terrible answer. That is not why God made men a certain way. <laughs> and that that's yeah. really an abuse of masculine authority in a lot to a great extent. And yeah, my it, students are fascinated by this guy,
3: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, if you go back and you read John Stuart Mill, I mean, the guy was was you know way ahead of kind of modern feminists in many ways. And it's this idea that if you, you know put women into civil society it's going to domesticate men and and really uh really kind of curtail the excesses of, of whatever you know nature they have when it comes to aggression or vulgarity it's kind of like I can remember really well um, in my college years uh, I was in a fraternity we were the fraternity that never had big parties or females uh, visiting us at all but on the rare occasion that a woman would walk into our fraternity house, all of a sudden, you know, the guys would you know, look to see, oh my God, you know, <laughs> I've worn the same shirt for three days and I'm, I'm not gonna be throwing F-bombs anymore and I'm gonna kind of do my hair a little bit. You know, that kind of that way of kind of improving um, and, and really ameliorating our inner sensibilities is, is what Mill had in mind. And, and instead, when what you see today is you see, kind of this, kind of these waves of 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 the gender wars, where now we're essentially saying, well, women can be just as bad as the men. That's what real equality looks like, um, and that's that's really, I think, uh, kind of where we've gone off track. Um, I mean, I am the I am the father of two brilliant uh, young women. My wife is 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 fabulously successful, and I'm so proud of them. So nobody believes in gender equity more than I do. Um, but but I do think that there there is a there, is, there are waves of excess. That I think just kind of normal people at the top of the horseshoe are saying we're just gone way beyond any sense of normalcy or proportionality.
0: Any other anybody else want to weigh in on on? Uh, I'll borrow Jeremy's term the gender wars conversation. Before we go to our actual topic of school choice today, I, I love this conversation. I just don't want us to actually forget to talk about <laughs> that's
2: what we said we were going well, to chat about today. Actually, no. So I'm reading Peachy Keenan's new book, uh, Domestic Extremist and great, it really great is publisher.
3: great publisher. publisher
2: yeah yeah from regner
0: <laughs> yeah. it. love it would be great
2: <laughs> uh <laughs> be oh it's great i mean if you've read our articles the, the the book is it reads like a lot of our articles and it's just all together but it's a very good kind of deconstruction of a uh, feminism like she's very very critical of and, and fourth wave third wave fourth wave feminism and you know, she kind of talks about the excesses of it. And I mean, she gives a, a feminine perspective on it, which I mean, it's interesting. I, I think the, the book is best when she talks about her own experience, okay. um, you know, and, and I think, you know, just her growing up in SoCal. Uh, I mean, I think in the L.A. area and just kind of among other Gen Xers. And she kind of grew up. Well, she grew up in, a, I guess, a secular kind of home. Um, but she, yeah, she, she, now she's like a Catholic mom. She's got five kids. Um, <clears throat> and no, I mean, she, she really talks about, cause I've always had that issue. Like, I hate to blame, you know, like the failings of men on feminism. It seems kind of like a cop-out, you know, it's like, okay, well, I have my thoughts on feminism, you know, you know, the right to vote, the right to have equal wages, the right to opportunities, Obviously, I I think that's fine, you know, but when you start getting into like more cultural types of matters, like the narratives and the stories we tell and you have the girl boss and you have the weak man and you got, I guess, soy boys and male feminists. Um, Sure, I can weigh in, but I mean, I I guess I always and maybe it's the manly part of me, you know, (laughs) it's like, well, it's not like their fault. It's not feminism's fault that, you know, I'm a loser that, you know, lives in my parents' basement or something, you know? And I always felt like that's kind of where that went. Like even Andrew Tate, you know, he, he, he's kind of that guy. He's like, Oh, well, you know, well, Andrew Tate, if, if you're in jail in Romania, you know, if you're being charged with, you know, being a pimp for online prostitutes uh, that that's you, man. Uh, that's not, that's not feminists. That's not, you know, sex in the city feminism or, or any kind of, or, you know, even the LGBT movement stuff, it, it's none of that. So I, I think that's the, the thing about that. I mean, if we're talking about like masculinity and femininity, you know, I, I think you have to have your spokesman, but you really do need to be clear about mm-hmm. what exactly you're criticizing. And you really got to avoid kind of like making excuses for, for failings. Like, I mean, and, and, and I'm, I'm down for that. I like, I think Josh Holly has, a book do you have his Josh Hawley's book? uh I I haven't haven't read his book I I heard
0: him read and review it too so I
2: I have it on my list and it's like you know I I like that conversation though and and Jeremy's talked a lot about it even in hollowed out just talking about like kind of the failing of men and just not rising Mm -hmm. to the occasion um I mean it's only tangentially related to feminism I mean I I think we try to support and encourage women and it's been a good thing uh and maybe we haven't done the same for men you know but uh, I mean I think that's easily fixable you know I don't know
0: well without I, I don't want to go too long on this or, or deep into it because I just I just finished writing a dissertation that ended up being heavily about this very question uh, so I, I could monologue on this for far too long and don't want to but I do want to just chime in that I think there's there is more to the feminism connection than I expect Peachy Keenan to get into um because I I've read the first I read the first chapter last night and it's fun it reads totally like somebody who's started a career uh, on the internet blogosphere. That's that's the <laughs> level of writing that she's doing. Um, Scott Yenner does a much better job of tracing the intellectual history of uh, modern feminism in his book, Recovery of Family Life. And I think if you pair his analysis with the idea of the long march through the institutions, all of these things really come together. And I'm sure we can find some way to tie this into school choice, <laughs> but we're, we'll get there here in a minute. Uh, but the Yenner uh, shows that there's this massive, massive movement in uh, feminist scholarship across the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and the 90s that are really disconnecting the idea of femininity from the body. And at the point where that is the disconnection that and that that, that disconnect really becomes carried into a giant sociological, cultural goal of... Um, feminine triumph is really a feminine triumph against the biological nature of femininity. And so that sort of divorce becomes what has been culturally celebrated for the last 30 to 40 years, 50 years if you're in France uh, or, or in different parts of the world. But um, so I think part of what goes in part and parcel, it's, it's really hard to find. It's really easy to find people who are trumpeting, the girl boss narrative. Um, and it's really hard to find people who are just saying what I think every man knows what it means to be a man. I mean, it means that you should uh, exercise responsibility, you should take care of the your your home if you have one, take care of your family if you have one, you should be using your strength and your gifts to care for others and use whatever authority you have in a positive leadership way. Like that's 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 known, but it's not trumpeted nearly as much. We've invested massive, massive social capital in the last decades in trumpeting this feminist narrative that is the underlying it's the intellectual framework underneath the sexual revolution. It evolves and mutates into variation various parts of the LGBTQ narrative. Like all of that is in one sense a it's like a rabid cancerous feminism. There's a there's a healthy kind of feminism that starts with equality before the law. <laughs> once you get past that equality before the law it gets into really weird areas uh and so I think part of but that that's that's where all the energy and effort has been for the academically for the last I would say probably since 1948 and the or 1952 and the publication of Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex like feminism has been on the upswing ever since then and I don't know that the the answer is to have a manism or a masculinism that that creates a counter body of literature, but they're at the very least like, uh, we gotta get rid of a toxic feminism and and get back to encouraging both men and women to be actually what they were made to be. And that, that would lead us to a healthier position as a society. All right, that's my soapbox moment, I'm done there. Anybody else want a soapbox moment before we jump to school choice? All right. Uh, I think
2: think you said it for us.
0: (laughs) Okay. All right. Let's let's get into school choice, because that's where I don't remember how it's been five or six weeks. But one of you all put up a uh, a Daniel Buck article on our uh, our group chat thread. And uh, I had just written an article about school choice that still hasn't come out. But uh, it seems like we were all thinking about school choice. And here we are. Uh, So uh, this is just a toss up question um I, I know we all made it through zoom school so we we all can manage surely we can manage to uh, all talk without trampling over each other but and without a really overt like you're speaker one you're speaker two like just everybody feel free to jump in however um i'll, I'll ju- add a new question whenever we've sort of run through this one uh but with that being said uh what is the school choice movement and uh, what momentum Has it recently garnered? And why is it picking up steam now instead of like 10, 15, 20 years ago? What are your thoughts?
2: Uh, Well, I'll I'll get us started just because I've written on this and my own daughter, she attends a charter school. Uh, So the school movement or school choice movement, it's pretty big. I I think we got to understand that. Um, there are different forms of school choice policy. So, I mean, most people, when they think of school choice, they think of issuing out vouchers to parents so that they can use those, like, you know, that money, like $8,000 or something. And they can use that towards a private school. Uh, they could use it towards uh, a charter school or public school. I mean, the, the systems kind of work differently the way that the schools are funded. Um, but the idea is that the money follows the kid. It does not just immediately go to the public school uh, the idea behind school choice is to break up the public school monopoly because let's say you're you know a poor kid in a, in a neighborhood and your school sucks and you know you, you want to go to the, the nice private school down the street or you want to go somewhere else um, but you're stuck there that uh, your parents can't afford to move they can't afford to send you to a private school so, This is a way to say, well, look, you know, the government can issue out this voucher and you can go to that private school. Um, So, I mean, I've been intrigued with the idea of school choice, uh, but I also recognize that there are elements of choice, even in the system that we currently have. Hmm. So usually you kind of have these halfway kind of marks like charter schools. So you have the public school, you have the private school, and then you have charter schools, which are publicly funded, but they're independently run and they're kind of a workaround for those kids usually again if you're stuck in a neighborhood where the school you don't like it uh you can go to the charter school i would argue and i have argued that even offering different tracks in a school uh or offering magnet schools within a district is a form of choice right um and that's generally how this works uh you you see a lot of news about this in new york about kind of these schools and they have you have to fill out an application, take a test, and you can get in there. Um, <clears throat> and so, I mean, in Dallas, it's the same thing. There's some magnet schools where they're GT, right? So you do have to take some sort of a, a assessment and you get in there. Um, and I mean, in, in any school, any public school, you have you know the AP track, you have the on-level track, uh, and then maybe you have like some remediation courses or, or special ed kind of stuff. So I would argue that these are choices too. Um, so if you are a parent, I mean, I, I kind of push back against the narrative that these that, you know, Corey DeAngelis and a lot of these school choice people will push just saying, oh, well, you know, you're just stuck. Like, well, no, I mean, you got a choice. You, you know, normally, if if you're more motivated, you go into the AP track, you go into that AP bubble. Uh, I mean, if you're more focused on maybe sports or extracurriculars or just getting a job and you're not really academic, OK, you do the on level um and if you're struggling and you got a handicap okay they have services for that uh now I mean I would say maybe we need more tracks than that because I mean even then it's like well they're not really being challenged in the AP classes or the on level really isn't hard enough and you have some bad students that need to be addressed you know that kind of thing so that's the school choice movement um and Buck's piece I thought was pretty good because his whole thing was that okay Let's just say you have this up and running and you do like in Arizona, they're doing it, Florida, they're doing it in certain states, they're they're doing these kind of voucher programs. Well, what you have going on is that there's a lot of instability. You know, if if, if you're a kid and you're just like, well, first of all, as a parent, you need to do a lot of research on schools like, OK, is this a good school? You can't just take it for granted that, you know, your neighborhood school is going to be OK. Uh, it might not be. Um, you can't, and you know, there might be a new school that just opened up because now you can get kids to enroll and it, and it usually opens up with uh, like some kind of gimmick. A lot of these charter schools are kind of fly by night operations. They'll be like, Oh, we're the Michael Jordan superhero school, you know, (laughs) a champion leadership. I mean, Shane knows what I'm talking about. I mean, you have some of these kind of things. Sanders is
1: prime Academy that came and went.
2: Yeah. uh, It's uh, so, I mean, it sounds good. And they got like a good brochure. But so that's, a, I mean, there's that instability. So some of these places are legit and usually like the good charter schools are part of a system kind of like founders uh, or, or a KIPP or, or, or great hearts or some of these others. Um, but you have some that are not really. And, and so like you would have to come up with an auditing system to make sure the schools are like up to snuff uh, parents themselves would have to do some kind of research to know if the school would be good for their kid. Mm. Uh, and if the kids in the school and they don't like it, or it's just it's not what they thought it'd be, like, well, do they get to the pull out? I mean, can they you know go to a different school? So that creates a lot of instability even within the year. And then teachers are usually not paid very well at schools outside. I mean, maybe Josh, you could speak to that. But, I, I can. Yep. Uh, but well, I mean, in a lot of private school systems, um, yeah, the teachers aren't paid as well, or in a lot of charter schools too. public school i mean if you're a teacher and that's why i teach at a public school they offer the best salaries um and so i mean that that creates a lot of turnover even at school you know at schools right because even if you believe in the mission of the school and i would love to work for a classical school a classical private classical charter uh you know i know i'm gonna have to take a pay cut Um, and so you, 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 you would have to make that trade-off. I mean, and that's kind of how Buck kind of organizes his whole essay just as trade-offs, right? It's like, you're not going to have as much stability. The school is not going to be that center of community anymore now because everybody's just kind of going to their own special place. Uh, and so, I mean, and, and those issues I feel like can be addressed just through policy and just through, um, you know, experience, um, But, you know, so that's the thing. School choice is a very, has many heads, has many facets to it. There are many different stages to school choice, to full school choice. Uh, And there are some issues that pop up once you have that kind of system. Uh, I mean, right now, I mean, in lots of places, it really is just the public school. It is a monopoly. There's not a lot of incentive to reform. And if you're kind of stuck there, you, you do what you can. But Um, It it is an area where you can make a lot of difference in society if you want.
3: Yeah, I I think a lot of brilliant points uh, Auguste made right there. Um, I guess the two things I would say is like, you know, you ask, Josh, where is this coming from? Uh, And I think there's kind of a really twofold there. Number one, obviously, is I do think there is this powerful and palpable sensation that you see in things like, you know, the Virginia governor's race two years ago and all the conversations you see that, you know, education is public education in this country is getting worse. Um, and that you see all of these failures happening in the American classroom. Every other day, you see a new study about how now eighth graders know less about American history and civics than at any point in American history. You know, we see things like graduation rates going up at the same time that math and reading scores are going down. I think there's this powerful sense that public schools are failing. They've been failing for a long time and it's getting worse. Now, I would argue and quibble with that, by the way, but I do think that that's the perception that's out there. Um, You know, in one uh, one of my teacher books, Not Hollowed Out, um, I actually quote the same thing that Buck quoted in his article, which is that you know there's this in political science we always uh, kind of when you're teaching about you know incumbency advantage we always talk about the fact that um, Americans hate Congress but they love their congressmen. You know we love you know we love to kind of have a a five percent approval rating for the institution, but you know it, it really. Really, the problem is the other 434, you know, sons of guns. Our guy is awesome. You know, we love our guy or our, our girl. We love, but it's everybody else. Well, the same thing is true, I think, in education largely, which is that if you ask the average parent, hey, what do you think of American public education as this kind of vague, nebulous thing? They'll say, oh, it's awful. It's terrible. We're doing awful. And you say, well, what do you think about the education your child received? Oh, it was pretty good. You know, I'd give I'd give my school an A or B, but I'd give the whole institution a C or D. And I think that feeds this idea that we have to have some kind of a uh, a public policy impetus or tool to solve all of these problems. Um, but but I, I would add a few things onto what you said there. The first one is I think though that um, I think sometimes one of the issues we have is that we kind of overcorrect for things. And I think most people really are by and large happy with. Uh, their public schools. Um, at the end of the day, um, I, I, and again, I, I don't want to sound like I'm you know, the kind of union rep, uh, public education guy here, but, but I, I kind of am. And, and I will tell you that this is an important conversation. And I think that absolutely there should be choices, though I think August's point that there are lots of choices within a school is a brilliant point, because there are lots of tracks that you can take within a school. Not only that, by the way, there are lots of tracks that you can take in a community. Um, you know, in my community, we have something like We're the largest public high school district in California. And if you don't want to go to your neighborhood school, you can go to a different one. And they're very, very different within that system. Um, And and actually, if I want to have some fireworks here, I'm going to quibble with Josh here a little bit. Uh, there There was a line in your article where you said mainstream public education has a singular vision. I don't think that's true at all. I think you, you go to different districts, different schools, different classrooms, there's lots of different visions, lots of different pedagogy, lots of different opportunities going on there. But I would just say kind of broadly speaking, because I don't know how long you know the, the, the podcast is gonna last. I will say, I still think this conversation as important as it is, is cosmetic. We are still talking about using schools and funding mechanisms to transform civil society we're still focused on schools and the teachers, and that's great, that's fine to talk about it, but we all know that 90% of what happens when it comes to the outputs of a school is dictated by the inputs, what happens before those kids even get to the campus. And again, politicians don't like talking about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, Intellectuals don't like talking about that because they want to fix things, mm-hmm. and they want to give the latest and the greatest and the avant-garde idea and at the end of the day, strong families, traditional values, valuing education, attaching your things, yourself to things that matter in your life and knowing that your education helps for you to live a meaningful and full life. If you don't come to school without value system, <clears throat> we can fund things however we want fellas and not much is going to change.
1: Next. I would, <laughs> I would, uh, and I don't know where I, to be very frank, I feel like I probably a split between everyone here. I I I uh, I really don't know the best route. What I do know is, if, if if I if I could punch a hole in anything you say, the idea and Buck mentions it too in the in in his article, the idea that the that we we think public education broadly is bad, but locally we think it's good. I I think that that might be true, but I think it might be more of like a hey. I'm a parent, and I have to justify that I let my kids go through this system. So I'm going to say it was okay. Um, There's a tendency to look back on things and 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 to rationalize them as better than they were. That's you know a very common psychological principle. So that's kind of the feel I get. I think if you look at what's going on. And I know that you would agree with this, Jeremy, if you look at what's going on, like there is some terrifying stuff going on trend wise in public education is why we're having this conversation now. Um, in my experience, teacher quality is going down and going down very quickly. That's come with the smartphone. Um, so the, the, the quality of our teachers, the availability of good teachers with the teacher shortage, the number of good teachers going into public education um, and, and at, you know, at the center of this, I think, is the smartphone too um which is uh, giving making it harder on teachers so that really good teachers don't teach as well as they used to because they're tired of fighting the battle there's this apathy that's just rampant in schools um and, and 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 so that that's important to kind of wrestle with like how do we address that issue how do we address the lack of quality people in public education um the other thing I would say is you know uh, the, the point of there are tracks, there are choices within public education. Um, I think that there is more of an image of tracks than there really is a track. Now, there certainly are tracks. Um, I, I just think that that could be overstated, that there are options within public education. There certainly are, but, uh, you know, not there's not the diversity of options that I'd like to see. I don't have the option to um, put my children in, uh, uh, you know, uh, in a real committed to excellence, a program truly committed to excellence. I've seen the AP track become more and more watered down. What we get when we see the college credit um, option is that a lot of these a lot of these college uh, professors come over and there's a giant variety in uh, the quality of them and, and their standards. Um, what I see is a lot of really good students who have to, you know, who half their day, they're just playing around because they're allowed to um you know th- these are AP track kids but they're taking their computer uh you know whatever computer class and that's just the expectations you have five minutes of work and you know uh 85 minutes of play every day um and this is in good schools uh, across the area and across the country I, I I've spoken to a lot of teachers over the past year so th- that's concerning to me um you talk about the other thing I'd say quickly is you know Jeremy talks about and I completely agree uh most of the most of the education process is decided before they go to school based mm-hmm. on the family and your book you know makes that case beautifully but the other thing i'd say is the the thing i'm as a parent i'm most terrified of is what happens to my kids when they now go and mix amongst the mm-hmm. mainstream culture uh particularly the they're exposed to uh public education and the norms of these students uh, within the classroom, and w- within the halls, within public education, it terrifies me um, because that—that that is the most insidious uh, threat to, to to my own children, I, I believe. Um, and so, it, these are things that I think have to be addressed, and they're the crux of why we're having this conversation now.
0: So, I've got a long list of things as y'all were running through that that I, I want to try and respond to in some semblance of order. Um, but I want to I want to go back to kind uh, where August started a few minutes ago about like what exactly is school choice, uh, and I think the largest component we ought to consider is that school choice is really a question of how do we fund a social good, and it, it's a question of a monopoly versus a free market approach to education. Uh, the piece that I think everybody agrees with in the United States today is that education is vitally important. <laughs> I don't know anybody that thinks education is just silly and unimportant, and it's it's one of the reasons why it's one of the things you can spark really strong divisive debate about real fast. If you tell, us I, I was on a uh, uh, some buddies and I did a um, a ten mile uh, beer ruck a few few weeks back, and I was talking to this one guy that I thought we could have a good debate with, and he's telling me all about how he's really, he would love to have marijuana be legalized in the state of North Carolina, which I think is a terrible idea for all kinds of reasons. But then I was like, and I just somehow managed to bridge that over to like, you know, I'm really excited about the school choice funding bill here in North Carolina. Oh man, I had just taken his golden cow and threatened to like melt it down in the fire. He was so angry that anything might touch public school funding. I think that gets at the heart of this because, um, one of the things we figured out at Thales Academy is that you can do some really cool things as a school. If you have enough money coming in, <laughs> like when there's not enough money, it's tight. You can't do raises supply. Like it's a whole question of supplies. It's, it, it just gets bad. What we figured out as a, for a private school at least, is that if we have about around 500 students per campus, um, there, there is enough money coming in at our tuition point that it means we can do a lot of cool things. We can do subsidized trips, we can do we can hire extra folks to help with uh, lift up burdens on the campus and so on. We can do all kinds of stuff, but it's tied to scale and it's tied to an amount of money coming in per student, which, as I understand it, is pretty similar to the way, at least in North Carolina, our public schools are funded. Uh, the majority of public school dollars are coming from that local county. And they're coming from property tax dollars that are taxed by homeowners and then are sent over to the schools based on the number of students they have enrolled. And this is why students are assigned to a specific district and different areas do it differently. Uh, in Wake County, at least, we're mostly tied to the same school that we're districted to. Um, you can you can kind of get around that if you know the system and you, you know which forms to submit. But most people go to the schools that they're districted to. So we're talking about school choice we're talking about as august pointed out it's the the dollars follow the student if a student in north carolina uh, and then uh the most different states set this up so differently we're currently up to seven states that have passed school funding bills in the last two years which is why again this is a conversation worth having most of them have a dollar amount that is indexed to the family's income level that wherever the family decides to enroll that student those dollars go to that school which raises all kinds of questions. If I want to send my kids to a Baptist school, can the state money go to a Baptist school? The Supreme Court ruled last year in this case involving a, 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 an Episcopalian school in the state of Maine that the answer is yes. Uh, if, they, if I want to send them to a Catholic school, even if I'm Baptist and the best school in my area is a Catholic school with nuns who are going to wrap my kids' knuckles, like, they, uh, can, can that happen? If I want to send my kids to an atheist school that's going to teach evolution and progressive ideology and tell me that any uh, connection between God and morality is the dumbest thing ever, can I do that? Like, that's that's the question here. And the, the school choice position, I think, as I understand it, is one that says, uh, basically, let the market solve the question of what do parents really want? And instead of the state setting up a single apparatus whereby the public education monopoly is the only choice you have – um let a thousand potential school models blossom and everybody realizes if you can have a workable school model that parents are willing to sign their kids up for that meets basic state criterion you too can get a slice of state funding to cover educational needs so I think that's really what we're debating as we're discussing this I mean that's that that is the school choice question uh and it it draws up a lot of things uh, I'm going to hit a bunch of other things real quickly, and then then see where what where y'all go from there. Um, I I think the competition element <laughs> is key because as several of you mentioned, um, currently, in the status quo in most towns and most states there are not good competition options for public schools. The private school options are prohibitively expensive, so if I'm a private school parent, I'm not really comparing my private school experience to my local public high school experience. Uh, those are just kind of two separate economies. Uh, but suddenly, if if I can have $10,000 of state money to put my kid wherever, well, that gives an incentive to a private school to lower their costs to bring in more kids. And it means that the public school now has to fight to keep my business as a parent. And it means I'm much more important as a parent in a way that I didn't used to be because I now have an option. Now, to the local community element that uh, Jeremy and Shane, y'all talked about, I, I'd be really curious uh, if y'all's experiences with this, because I mean, I, in full transparency, I was homeschooled and then went to a private Christian school for high school. So I didn't have that particular connection. In my context, at least, we have so much transient movement into uh, the Raleigh-Durham area that I don't think that exists mm-hmm. in the same way that it once did. I think 30 or 40 years ago, there was a tight connection between parents who went to that school and still live here and raise their kids and their kids go to that school, but I don't think that exists in nearly the same way. So I'm not sure if that community point uh, still stands. Um, to the point about parent investigation, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, and, but I would argue that that's already the case. Um, if parents aren't actively involved in their schools and aren't actively asking whether or not their teachers are good human beings, um, there are some really troubling stuff happening. I don't know if y'all saw the report out of Chicago this year. Um, 3% of Chicago public school teachers were found to have committed some sexual indiscretion involving a minor this year. Now you can, like with all stats, you can look at that one way or the other. That's only 3%. I'm like, good Lord, 3%. That's a, and and we're talking about a pool of like 40,000 teachers. Like that's a lot of people to have had indiscretions in a, in a single school year. And those indiscretions ran the gamut. This was a this was a this is a big report. It was pretty. It was it was also hushed up pretty quickly. Uh, the the teachers union in, in Illinois is uh, pretty pretty strong at keeping bad news away. Um, Jeremy, you wanted to push back against the singular vision line. What I always meant there was a uh, a an accept, a widespread acceptance of a progressive approach to education that I would root in John Dewey, a utilitarian framework about uh, job prep rather than learning for its own sake. Um, paired with a general secularity uh, and then the monopoly that teachers education programs have over licensure. All of that builds a similar perspective within public education that may or may not have, it's got strengths, it's got weaknesses. I would also add the um, widespread reading of Paulo Freire's Pedagogies of the Oppressed to the uh, list of factors that build a a singular vision that the, that's a, that's a generational thing. I mean, when I talk to older teachers, they don't really think their job is to liberate the oppressed. But when I talk to younger teachers who have come through a formal education program, every single one of them has read Paulo Freire, and they believe that that's, that's what they're there for. Um, Last thing I want to say about this is that the other thing that I think is, has at least created a ton of articles, and I think is there's, there's something true to it, uh, you're a For a public school family to be looking at shifting over to a private school model or something that a school choice uh, voucher program might incentivize is also tied to how much woke stuff have those parents encountered in their children's education. Um, three particular examples that I can give article links to if if anybody wants. Um, here in Wake County, we had uh, Christopher Rufo reported on <laughs> Wake County, which I was kind of excited and very distressed to read about. Uh, we, we had a, a county-wide, uh, we're, we're one of the largest school, count, public school counties in the state or in the nation, uh, but we had a school-wide professional development training that was particularly uh, teaching on the, uh, at that point, it was the gender, gender man and uh, the like social justice awareness and diversity, and equity, inclusion, all of that was kind of piped in for an annual PD for teachers. Um This week in Annapolis, or really last week in Annapolis, Maryland, uh, the Federalist was reporting on uh, a a bunch of Muslim parents that were protesting uh, the uh, sexuality and uh, book choice selection focuses in their local schools. And they wanted that kicked out. Um, Joy Pullman wrote about a really interesting group of like on the one hand there's fundamentalist conservative christian parents and then there's fundamentalist conservative muslim parents both were protesting the uh dearborn michigan school board uh over books that were included in the in their library i know we're all watching these things but i think that the more that is included in public schools the more it raises this question of well if this is at my school can i get my kids somewhere else without breaking our family's finances And that's where the the school choice bills become really really interesting okay jeremy you keep making faces so why don't you well yeah there
3: there are a few things first of all those things are out there i'm not saying they're not out there And, and they make for good articles in the federalist and for fox news and everything else and they're there right and i get that i'm not denying that and i know augusta and i have kind of had we've texted privately about this but that is such a that is such a peripheral issue to really, I mean, I can't get my kids to pay attention, Josh. You know, I mean, I, I I can't get them to read. You know, what I mean, I'm not worried about a bunch of people coming in and you know, I mean, and I'm sure that there's you know inappropriate books in Florida that you should probably remove. And I'm I'm sure there's some really you know crazed teachers on libs of TikTok who are teaching. And I'm sure that that's out there. But like, you know, we're talking about, you know, parents and choice and and I'm really, I, I am all for that. I mean, I'm very, I'm a very conservative guy. I believe in the market, but I do believe when you use the market to try and discipline public entities, those public entities are very resilient. And I think one of the things we have to keep in mind is the number one problem that I see in my urban high school is not that parents don't have choices. It's that literally they are just not involved in the life of their children. I mean, so we're having a conversation about, you know, which private school should they go to? Do we want to focus on a kind of progressive or conservative or religious? And that's, that's all fine, but I think it misses the broader point, which is just simply we have a whole generation of young people who are growing up without really substantive adult role models in their lives. Um, and, and so to me, that's, that's we, we almost have like this bifurcated problem. Um, I went and spoke at this really great conference back in October, it's called Parents United, Great people, James Lindsay, whose work you just uh, were really referring to a minute ago, um, you know, was there. I mean, a lot, you know, it was really, really great. But when I was talking to them, it was kind of like, well, this is and their 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 worries and their concerns, Josh, are absolutely valid, right? We don't want to have all the you know, a lot of the progressive ideology infecting the the you know our schools and the curriculum. And and you are right. You and Shane both bring up a great point about this kind of huge chasm when generational teachers, like younger teachers, see their role as very therapeutic, not really curricular, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're absolutely right about that. But I would tell you, there's really, like, we're, we're talking past each other here in some ways because I'm telling you, if you're on the bottom side of, of the socioeconomic ladder, nobody's talking about this. Nobody. My problem is that parents don't even check their children's scores or answer emails or come to Parent Night or even know what's going on. Uh, much less I want to have this rich spectrum of choices about how the funding mechanism is going to work and where I'm going to send them. So again, I guess I just I I'm I'm I get a little frustrated because I feel like if there's one thing that really kind of can bolster a child's you know success chances in, in American civil society, it is education. And I, I think that um, you know, frankly, to a certain degree, and, and I know this sounds kind of harsh, but if if you have two Two loving parents, you come from a middle upper class home and you've valued education since you came out of the womb and you've always known you're gonna to go to college. Frankly, you don't even have to go to that great of a school. You're gonna be okay. You're gonna be okay. You you have a good work ethic, you have the right values, you can survive bad teachers. I'm really worried about students who can't survive bad teachers and failing schools. And how do we fix that? And to me, the way that we fund our schools really isn't probably Going to do that because even if you did give a voucher to those parents, I'm not quite sure if they would do the research. And second of all, even if they did do the research, we know that the private schools in town would jack up the prices so that the people who have money to subsidize the subsidy, you know, it it, it's still going to make it unaffordable to them. So I guess I guess I'm kind of on the outline here. I guess I'm probably not in the in the mainstream of the conversation. I think Shane wants to back me up though. I feel that he wants to jump (laughs) in here and back me up right now. You know, I know he does. I can see that look on his face.
1: I think you bring up a ton of great points, and I think it's, it's important to to state what the counterpoint is amongst most people who are most opposed to uh, the, the voucher system, which is w- what's, what you're going to do is you're going to make the public schools worse, and this amount of money will not be enough to get yes. the lower income or, you know, just m- most people in America are, are, are not, don't have a lot of discretionary income right now. Uh, It's just the reality. Um, So what you're going to do is you're going to make those public schools worse. And and when the public schools get worse, that's going to be really, really bad for the people, uh, for the kids that most need education. Where I would somewhat push back, um, and I think that this isn't, this is a really complex issue. So this isn't a disagreement with Jeremy as much as it's, he was focusing on one thing, I'm going to focus on another but, you know, and Jeremy made this point, actually, in his book, which is that the uh, to, to, to some degree, we've asked our schools to do too much mm-hmm. to do the parenting. Mm-hmm. And I think that our, one of the biggest issues with our public schools right now are that we have for, to way too much of an extent. We have said that the, the, the well-parented kids are going to be fine. So we're just going to organize the system around focusing on bringing up the bottom. Uh, I've I've written quite a few articles on on that, you know, it's it's just overemphasis on the most disadvantaged, uh, the least successful, the people that, you know, that that once you're in high school and you don't know basic, you know, multiplication that really have no, are not going to be benefited by academic emphasis, to be quite frank. Um, And in the process, we've really watered down the entire system. We've brought the entire uh, mean down. And uh, so, so that's really concerning to me. That's what I've seen personally, um, and, and in in my experience too, there are so many of these kids that do get by. They get straight A's. They they've they've learned to approach school as a big game, and they're good at it. But they don't like learning. They're not going to continue learning. And it's a it's a real travesty because they don't they're not really active citizens in society. Uh, they aren't reading. I mean. <laughs> they just don't read people just don't read much it's you know i remember a goose saying to me when i suggested uh, i'd be happy to send a book to any uh of his colleagues that that uh were interested in reading it he he, he quit back uh oh, what are you talking about you know teachers don't read it's, gosh it's
0: bad, but it's 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 more true than it's false yeah
1: they read harry potter okay (laughs) i grew up with harry potter let's uh, harry potter's off limits i know you're (laughs) is
3: is there any is there anybody here over 40 besides me i'm i i
2: I, no okay okay wait you're 40 over 40 jeremy i'm not just just, just,
0: i had a a birthday birthday. birthday. otherwise he started teaching when he was like four
3: (laughs) well yeah exactly but i I, you know I, i will get these i get these kind of uh you know, 4.30 in the morning, a goose frustration texts. Uh, and so, you know, that dude's kind of my first communication in the in the day more often than not. Wake up early,
2: Jeremy. I'm always
3: impressed. I know. It's just, it's just That's prostate. It. I have to go, go to the bathroom. Hours, like, don't don't oh, be hey, too I. impressed, man. It's <laughs> not that, it's not, I'm not out there like lifting, even you know, apparently. But, um no, Shane, and, and I, and Shane, I didn't want to suggest in a way that like, you know, people who come from, you know, like my our children um you know shouldn't be focused on i mean i spent my whole life focusing on, sure. on those students um i mean and I, i've seen a dumbing down of that you i mean and, and you know setting the bar you do a great job kind of a- explaining that that you know instead of striving for excellence um and instead of like literally trying to create a generation of young people that know how to think and and, and find the beauty in, in in learning in the hopes of self-actualization uh, that really it's just you know drill and kill um at, at this point we've really Sap the the verve and the and the romanticism of learning, especially for people at the upper end. So, I no way did I want to suggest that. I mean, I mean that's what I teach. So, um, but I, I just meant if we're trying to really, in the aggregate, improve education, um, that you know, I, I look at my students and sometimes I think, you know, you don't really love my class and you're not doing that great, but you'll probably still be okay. That that's that's the only point sure, that I, I want sure. to make. So, yeah, great point.
2: Well, yeah. Well, I, I would agree with Jeremy in the sense that there are limits to what a school can do and And I think that it, it, and it's hard to make that case for both conservatives and progressives. You know, I mean, if you're a teacher writer, right, and you're writing about education, you find yourself straddling these two lines, trying to tell conservatives, well, look, sir, there are a few ways you can maybe improve education, but don't get your hopes up. and you tell progressives, school's important. yeah, we believe in it. But again, it's limited. <laughs> We're not going to be able to transform society the way you want it. And, and and I and I think that's kind of where like school choice. I mean, you, you have these issues. So the things that are afflicting like public schools. I mean, you're, Shane's kind of right. It's like well, it's smartphones is a big issue. I mean, it was funny. Like I started teaching in what 2007, and you know, so for the first like three or four years of my teaching, I, I never had you know I, I experienced classrooms without the phone. You know, I mean, the smartphone was I guess invented in two or you know came out in 2008. Uh, kids didn't really have it until 2010, 2011. Uh, and then even those first few years, they would get confiscated. So it really wasn't like a big disruptor in the class. Uh, but then afterwards, it just became this huge kind of sedative uh, for these kids. And they're just totally distracted all the time. Um, <clears throat> but but kind of seeing like, well, why did schools let that happen? I mean, I guess that's, that's how I'm approaching this. Like, well, why are schools just so complacent about this? Um, you know, because I'll raise a fuss. And this is why I, I text. You know, Jeremy, early in the morning, I'm like, you know, I'm trying to do things here. and I'm trying to explain things to people they don't want to hear me and they just want to keep going off on these things that don't matter. You know, and but I mean, just on the school front, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty competitive guy. I'm a very proud teacher uh, and, and I am an alchemist, man. I'll, I'll take dirt and make gold out of it. And I'm very proud of that. But that's kind of a personal thing for me. I, I, I guess I wish like, well, why is the school not? In any school I go to, I mean, I've worked in three districts now. Yeah, three. Um, <clears throat> and I mean, they're all, they're all kind of like, well, their main goal doesn't seem to be excellence. They don't really care to compete unless it's sports. I always think that's interesting. Like with sports, you can get that excellence because there is competition and there is some kind of goal and it's objective. But when it comes to academics, that whole attitude just shifts and it becomes very subjective. Um, and it seems like the goal instead of excellence is like just kind of like stability, you know, just kind of like keeping keeping things together. And I feel like that's why the like technology and, and kind of these influences have just kind of snuck into the classroom, even in AP classrooms like, well, keep some quiet. You know, I mean, they're on there. I, I remember when our school like adopted well, one of my schools uh, adopted iPads and it's like the, the hallways were quiet. Lunch was quiet. Oh. And on one hand, it's like, oh, that's nice. They're not fighting anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's just like, it's terrifying. They're not, they're not, there's no thought going on. They're not socializing. All that, all those benefits of going to public school and making friends and being socialized. Uh, it's not happening. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're still pretty isolated. Um, and we're just kind of enabling it because it makes our lives pretty easy. Like, okay, I don't have to break up fights anymore. Can, so, can,
3: can, I, can I ask you a question, Augusta, about so, that? So I'm wondering, and I guess to Shane, too, so you know, I'm 47. I know I look 27, but I'm 47, <clears throat> um, and 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 I'm starting to feel like a dinosaur because what I consider to be good teaching, you know, the kind of dynamism in the classroom, having strong connections with your students, high expectations with support, knowing your subject really really well, um, like nowadays it feels like no, that's not what you're supposed to be good. A good teacher. Is a technologist, they're really good with yeah. the technology, yeah. they're really good with the kind of you know intervention piece, they're really good with uh, kind of the therapeutic uh, characteristic. And I, I kind of feel like you know, if I ever wanted to be hired at a different school, nobody wants me. Nobody would want me. And what I think is is powerful, good teaching. Because like if I'm being honest, and I probably shouldn't say this on a podcast, but if Jeremy Adams was king, not only would I take away the phones, man, I'd take away the Chromebooks. I'd take away every. I would have a whiteboard and paper and yes. pencil and nothing else. I mean, I I, I might even get rid of the, the the PowerPoint. I like the PowerPoint, but if if it meant like I could, that's what I would get rid of. And I just think the way that we define what good teaching is, is 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 changed so radically that I just feel like I'm not a good teacher anymore by this current definition. Does your district at least kind of feel the same way?
1: They want it to be entertaining. They want the kids to learn by osmosis and entertainment much more than through academic rigor, commitment, uh, persistence. That is what they want. They want it to happen by accident. They want to see... And so if if it was entertaining, they want the kids to fall out of the class like, I didn't even realize it. Now, you know, I I understand. And so that is kind of the utopian delusional emphasis um that's exactly right i I would completely agree um and and in my mind it is you know coming at the worst possible time because our kids can be entertained all day you know that's that's the the party line from from what i've seen is these kids are so easily entertained you know they are entertained at every spare moment so you have to be so unbelievably entertaining if you want to keep their attention it's not about cultivating and you know focus a, a capacity to focus or you know getting them to fill the gaps it's just you know inter- you know letting them learn through osmosis we've really done a very poor job of, re- of recognizing that there is this technology that that, that can substitute for human capacity uh, and so that real deep learning is more important than ever before uh, it's kind of this this dog and pony show i would completely agree
0: now, guys, let me jump in here because I'm, I'm keeping an eye on our time and I'm, I'm assuming everybody's still good. But we, we were originally planning to be done around three, but we're, we're past that, which is fine. But we need to we'll, we'll probably to wrap this up. So let me see if I can kind of summarize where where our discussion has gone and then we'll go around one last time. before We wrap this up. Um, it seems to me that we have effectively discussed what the school choice movement is. And the three of you who are in various iterations of public education in. Um, California and Texas have accurately described a bunch of big systemic problems that um, school choice may or may not at all affect. Like, it doesn't seem to me that just the idea of of uh, maybe call it 15 percent of your classroom suddenly decides to unenroll and enroll in a different school. That doesn't change any of the problems that you're describing. Um what it seems to me we've we've kind of come around to unintentionally is describing both what we're really where modern education as a whole has, has gone wrong. And it, it points to a the need for something different. Um as y'all were discussing this, three areas seem to come came to my mind of like here's what we need. Um and I will by no means say that my school is perfect at this, but this is what we are trying to do. And literally Thales Academy is trying to be able to do a different kind of education that gets back to what education used to be at scale at the kind of scale that the schools you guys teach at operate on where you can have 500 to a thousand students in a singular building that are all doing school not the uh, I mean, my high school had I think 200 students k12 like not 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 that kind of school we're talking about the the larger number school but the it seems like what education is missing really three things, authority, hierarchy, and I need a single word for this, but what I mean is the right understanding of the pre-political. It's a mouthful. There's what I mean by that. Um, Teaching is by its nature an authoritative task. We as teachers stand up and we tell students, you don't know something. I do. My job is to help you understand it. Whether we've got the perfectly planned experiential lesson where students work together in rightly balanced groups and they discover things themselves or whether i have or whether jeremy's got his like really snazzy powerpoint with flame transitions everywhere and uh wh- whether we didactically uh teach it whatever uh, there's an authoritative role that the teacher you've got to have the teacher-centered classroom it is not the student-centered classroom that's a model for chaos the students don't know what they don't know um now obviously any of this can be taken to an extreme but in some ways this reminds me of the 19th century argument that um teaching is really a cultivation of taste we adults have taste and some to some degree we know what books are good whether we actually like them or not we know that we should like them <laughs> yes. and, and our job is to help students come to like them or at least know that they are wrong to not love them um there's an inherently there's a hierarchy involved in education. Uh, students are either passing, doing OK, <laughs> doing well, or doing really well. And, and that's really what the grades are for. They are either at the beginning, in the middle, or at the end of a segment of education. Uh, we are passing on a right understanding of hierarchy to students through education. Uh, when we try to get rid of that and we assume that everyone is equal and there are no standards, we get the kind of problems that Shane's been talking about and he writes about in his book, uh, where we just, we sort of collapse. We don't draw everybody up to the top. We force the people who should be at the top right down to the bottom. Um, and the last piece is what we've most frequent, most recently been discussing, but it's like, there's a lot that schools can't do. School is a political organization, not in a modern party politics sense, but in an Aristotelian sense of the question of how do we arrange society so that we can all live together well? And there's a lot of stuff that comes before the school. And so a school, to run a school well, we've got to rightly understand the role of parents and the role of the family. Uh, there is a ton of stuff that parents decide and parents teach kids and that it really is not my job to teach kids or discuss these things with kids or to, uh, to try and influence them in a way that goes against their parents. Uh, and that's, similarly, I would say the purpose of education is also something that is pre-political. It's something that we can't quite figure out as we go. We've got to know what the school is for in order for the school to be oriented correctly. And I would lastly tag human nature as something that, like, is, something that is really also pre-political. That's not something that the school is necessarily changing or shaping, uh, though it is. I mean, we, we, we help people discover their capacities, but we don't give them those capacities as a school. And there's a lot beyond the school that has to be done. So for a school to do what it can do really, really well means respecting all of these aspects of human life and human nature. that are really outside of the school. And there are times when that means I have to say, even if these parents are crazy, I have to respect their role as parents. And even if this this one kid seems like has got a totally separate situation, I have to lean on human nature and, and respond accordingly. None of that really seems to me to really tie directly to the school choice issue, except in as much as if I am a parent who is locked into uh, my kid going to the local uh, school that I've been assigned to by, based on where I live, and I don't think that the school I'm going to does any of those things well, I think I would want the financial freedom through a voucher system to try and put my kid somewhere else that's going to be better for my kid. So if some schools are better at all these things than others, that seems to me to be a strong argument for, from the parent side and from recognizing those very folks, Jeremy, that you were focusing on, the the students who are less financially, uh, let's just go with advantaged as a verb there. Um, Those are the people who need a strong understanding of authority, hierarchy, and the pre-political even more than the kids whose parents have enough money to put them wherever they want them to be. And so all of that seems to me to make the school choice argument really strongly that we ought to have the ability for parents to decide where they want their kids to go. All right, I'm done. What do y'all, what do y'all make of that as a rejoinder?
2: I'm gonna I think, I think
0: <laughs> that's a great place to end. I think that's great. Good
2: job. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, to wrap my whole thing up, I am cautiously uh, for school choice, but I believe it needs to be, coupled with just standards and uh, you know and, and audits and assessments I mean I, I really do think there needs to be more accountability and dare I say it more more competition more testing just we, we need to know more about what's going on in schools and just the standards um, to me that's the big problem it's just there's a lot of complacency and I, I think a school choice kind of initiative and, and as I say there are many phases to it. But I think you should try to kind of make that progress to allow more choices, but also attach standards and accountability to it as well. And that's kind of where I stand. I'm cautiously pro school choice, but, but not all the way. If you go too fast, then you can disrupt a lot of things and make the problem worse. I'm going to quickly
1: jump in and uh, I'll state that I don't really know what the answer is. Uh, but I think one of the things that... Um, I don't like about school choice is i do believe in the idea of the community i think that the decline of uh social capital and the uh, has been the worst thing for america i think a lot of the you, the, the word that stuck out uh, early on when you were speaking josh was scale and i think a lot of the idea is that we're trying to uh, a lot of the issues is that we're we have giant schools we have a giant united states population and we're trying to homogenize everything and I think that is the real, uh, the, the, the what's going wrong the most, uh, the most wrong. And if we could, you know, th- there's the, at the end of the uh, Buck article, uh, he quotes Hess. Uh, he didn't quote, he just references Hess, Dr. Hess, who acknowledges that we don't speak about airline telecommunication choice as sufficient policies, but deregulation, et cetera. I think uh, a, a big Part of the solution would actually be to have public education that is uh, fra- fragmented, that is broken down, that it is made much smaller, um, to to devolve the uh, authority to the local school again. Uh, we have these giant school districts with eight high schools, with a billion middle schools, a billion. And we don't uh, we don't empower these these educational professionals, and that's where it all breaks down. We try to homogenize things. We we, we try to create this this one-size-fits-all model where they can't handle the needs on their, their local districts. I think if anything, what we need is to break up schools and empower the local school more. That would be my ar- argument. I don't know that there's a movement for that right now, but that would be the movement I'd like to see.
0: I'd, I'd vote for that in 2024, just saying. <laughs> Yeah, I I guess I'll just kind of end by
3: saying I'm, you know, I'm fairly agnostic on it. Um, I I do. I'm really sensitive to what Josh is saying. There's not a lot there, Josh, that you said that I I really disagree with. Um, On the other hand, uh, I I am kind of with Shane in this idea that I I do worry about uh, the population of students who are the least capable of absorbing less resources, uh, really having to suffer for this policy. Um, And that really does, really does, uh, you know, bother me uh, probably that that's what my my parents were always worried about uh was that and i I think at the end of the day i mean i I do want to say that you know i think we're all kind of conservative here in the sense that we do believe that culture and family matters more than any public policy i think that that's kind of we all kind of accept that as a baseline but but i will say though that i'm i would support any kind of funding mechanism that attracts kind of the the best teachers to the students who need them the most right if you want a marshall plan New Deal, Great Society-esque kind of government mission, uh, kind of a policy prescription for the future, if you could match the neediest kids with the best teachers, and, and this is where kind of my conservatism comes back, because I do think that oftentimes unions do homogenize teaching say, okay, well, we're all the same. So should we all get paid the same? And we can never, ever do an evaluation of what a good teacher is. We're all equally qualified once we get a credential. Um, and so to me, until we can really have that conversation um, about meeting the needs of the neediest kids with kind of the, the, the teachers, who are the most able to do it. Um, and then kind of fold in before what Augusta and I were talking about, which is what even is a good teacher today? What do we want in a good teacher today. And until we're really willing to have that conversation. And until, by the way, and I really will shut up here, and until we are willing to say, the adults have to be in charge of our schools, right? We are not there to make kids feel good and to accept every whim and feeling they have in perpetuity, always and forever. At some point, the adults have to be in charge. And until we're willing to say, like you said before, right is right, wrong is wrong, this is acceptable and not acceptable, Two plus two is four. These are the books that educated people should know. You know, the capital of Texas probably should be Dallas, but it's Austin. Until we're willing to kind of have, you know, kind of an unapologetic dogmatism in the classroom a little bit, um, you know, you're going to continue to have chaos.
0: There's so much I want to follow up on there. I'll confine myself to two (laughs) two comments. The first is that I think you just described at least my understanding of what Teach for America is trying to be. And I keep getting, we keep getting teacher candidates who are just desperate to get out of their Teach for America placement. So um, whatever, I don't think a program like what you're describing could work without a clear definition of both. What do you mean by neediest students? And yep. what do you mean by best teachers? Like, Because right. our current attempt to doing that is taking college kids and pay for a year or two, year, one or four years of their college and then put them in inner city schools. And they're just desperate to get out as soon as they can. Um, but the same is, I think the same is true for the rest of what you just said. Like, and it's, it's been behind most of what we've been talking through today. So I'll, I'll just toss it in the conclusion. So much of what we're describing are things that Amer- in America we were able to get by on for decades because we had sort of a reflexive Christianity in American culture. That reflexive Christianity is gone, and with it went an understanding of a rightly ordered society and the role of parents and the responsibility of children to obey adults and all these other things. So, like, Jeremy, so many of the pieces you just said teachers need a dogmatism on, on one level seem objectively true, but there are the the, uh, math ethnic standards that started in Washington and then migrated south to California— yeah, they, they, they would just like you asserting two plus two equals four is an example of whiteness. Like, like that just is, and it, we, we've lost the ability to have that sort of objective reasoning. And I, I don't think it's going to come back on, uh, on a societal level, uh, short of a rediscovery of, of, rea- of ultimate reality. But that's a podcast discussion for another day. Um, let me ask everybody one last uh, follow up question. Because, uh, of course, half the fun of coming onto a podcast is the ability to plug your stuff and build your network. Uh, I want to combine two questions in one, uh, and I'll, I'll take the last one of these and then uh, conclude the show. Uh, but what are your current writing goals? What are you, what are you working on as your next, your next thing, either book or piece? And then secondly, where can people find and follow your work online? Uh, Shane, you want to start us off?
1: Yes. Uh, my n- next big writing goal is I don't know it, w- whether it's going to be a book uh, or just uh, something that actually goes into the world. But I'm, I'm working hard to I think a lot of parents uh, have no idea they were not raised with the, the, you know, I, I, the loss of a cultural standards, the loss of a, a real path to adulthood. The loss of uh, an understanding of what the books they should know are, what, you know, so a real path to adulthood, what it means to become a, 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 an adult, uh, what the expectations are, the standards. So I'm trying to clarify a, a lot more practical, pragmatic, like pathway uh, mm-hmm. via a book right now, uh, potentially, but uh, maybe like a program. Uh, I'd like to, to create something much more concrete to give someone uh, a, a real program. Uh, to to improving uh, culture uh, and, and their own home, home culture. Um, my uh, if, if you're interested in anything, uh, in my book or anything else I've written, uh, any other podcast trottershane.com, T-R-O-T-T-E-R-S-H-A-N-E.com.
3: Okay. I guess I'll, I'll jump on in here. First of all, you need to read uh, Setting the Bar by Shane Trotter, an amazing book. I wish he would have mentioned it there. Uh, it, it's a must <laughs> read. You. Um, but I uh, I have been deep uh, in, into a book for the last year. Uh, my next book uh, is going to be published by Harper Collins, uh, probably in the late spring. Uh, it's due in the middle of August. Now, it is essentially kind of the the second half of Hollowed Out. Hollowed Out was look, all of our students are hollowed out and here's why and here are the problems. This is a book, this is a solution book. This is a, what are we going to do about it? Um, and so essentially it's kind of a really unique book. It's, it's a book of what we call patriotic self-help um, where essentially it's lessons in liberty uh, where I'm going to look at the lives of 10 extraordinary Americans and, and, and derive 30 life lessons uh, from their lives. Um, and so it's essentially just a, a self-help book uh, using American history and American civics as the guide. Fantastic. And Jeremy, where can people find and follow your work online? Um, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at JeremyAdam6. Uh, you can look at my author profile on Amazon. Uh, like Augusta, I've, I've published a gazillion different places. Um, not a lot lately. Uh, it's been book, 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 uh, since about October. I haven't published in a long time. Looking forward to turning in the manuscript so I can write some of these articles that have been Woo! kind of percolating in my brain. I got, I got to get on that long Liberty, you know, thing. I, I got to get on that track. So I, I can't write one by noon every day, like August cans, but, but I can, <laughs> you know, I can pump them out. I can pump them out.
2: Uh, well, yeah, so, um, I, I don't have any book going um, I, I, started one and then I, I stopped. <laughs> I have three little kids. Um, I know Shane's kids are really young too. And they, no, they
3: excuses. To no excuses, no uh. excuses.
2: none. <laughs> so, Get up right earlier. I'm doing AP scoring. So that's probably what I'm going to do as soon as they're done here. Ugh. But anyway, um, no, I, I write for a lot of places. I'm a senior contributor to the Federalist. I contribute a lot of pieces to the American conservative. Uh, I write a lot for crisis magazine, a Catholic magazine, Uh, I've done Law and Liberty a few times. Acton, uh, it's become a more regular place. So thank you, Josh, for telling me about that. Um, And uh, yeah, I I am the founding editor of the Everyman. So that's everymancommentary.com. And uh, it's just a site for a lot of um, kind of freelance writers. And it's a lot of different subjects. And um, so, I mean, that's where I can be found. And right now I'm just kind of focusing on my kids AP scoring AP teaching. And, uh, yeah, I mean, my, my output is pretty prolific. I try to get two or three articles a week. Um, so I mean, my wife has to deal with that, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, and it's just about anything right now. Right, 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 today I wrote about a uh, charter schools in South uh, North Carolina, actually. So wow. yeah, well, y'all had the school choice thing going on. Um, yep. and, uh, a lot I've, I've of that's based on, so a study just came out about charter schools, mm-hmm. uh, Really doing outperforming public schools, and they were kind of met, matching it like the same demographic and everything. Pretty fascinating, um, and, and pretty validating for those of us who, that use you know charter schools. So, um, anyway, no, I write about anything, and you can find me at those sites.
0: Fantastic, yeah. Was, was, that the, was that the Texas Public Policy Foundation study or a
2: different one? It was Stanford. I think it's like wow. some Stanford, some Stanford division, and they did like 1.3 million or 1.8 million students. And it was impressive. I mean, a very yeah. comprehensive study.
0: Oh, good. I'll have to get a hold of that. Uh, well, uh, I'll, I'll answer the those same questions as well. This has been a, a big writing year for me, less so on the article front, but uh, I've, I've wrote a dissertation in 10 months. I'll be defending it in about two and a half weeks. And I've also, uh, one of my projects for Thales has been working on a 10th grade history book. So I've been uh digging into the history of the roman uh monarchy republic and empire and i'm currently in the early middle ages i need to get to the high middle ages for the end of the book Uh, that will eventually be published with thales press and in probably about a year it should be available to purchase on amazon uh so it's I'm, i'm pretty excited about how that one has come out i was uh we've had a great primary source driven history program at thales for years Our problem is we keep having teachers who are here for a few years and then they move on. And there's always a steep learning curve with teachers kind of taking up that approach. And this book is an attempt to help resolve that that learning curve a little bit. Because um, what it does is just kind of gather all the primary sources or all of the old historical passages. Because we honestly don't have a ton of primary sources for the Roman Republic. We have Roman historians of the late Republic and early Empire writing about the Roman Republic. Uh, so I'm taking those passages and sort of grabbing the the best excerpts and then stitching them together to create the narrative. Uh, so that this should be a way to support a, a history a high school history class uh, that is pretty thoroughly grounded in the the texts that we that give us that historical narrative. Uh, so, and then uh, so I'm hoping to eventually publish that and I'm. Uh, I, I still need to find a book, uh, a book agent at some point, but I really do want to take, uh, get my dissertation published, uh, ideally in an academic and a popular form. So we'll, we'll see. But that, that's really the, the adventure, of course, uh, of the next couple of years. And uh, if you're listening to or watching this podcast, you, you already know one of my, the main channels. You can follow me. Uh, but uh, I, I am trying to be a bit, bit active on Twitter at uh, the handle at, optimi- the, at the optimistic C3. Uh, so you can uh, find there and join the conversation, uh, guys. Thank you so much for being willing to get together. I know uh, it's it's summer and is it's 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 a sacrifice to get together, but I've really enjoyed our conversation. This has been really fun. Yeah, it's been great. Thank
1: you, Josh. It's been awesome.
0: Thank you. Um, thank you, listeners, for joining us today for another episode of the Optimistic Curmudgeon. My panel this episode has been Jeremy Adams, Shane Trotter, and Auguste Mayrat. Uh, Between the four of us, we represent private charter and public education in North Carolina, Texas, and California. Uh, Links to these authors' books and websites are in our show description, so please do find and follow them. Uh, If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Until next time, seek the good, discover the true, and love the beautiful. You've been listening to another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. The Optimistic Curmudgeon is a project of Thales Press. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star review and share it with your friends. You can find us on three major social media platforms. Search for The Optimistic Curmudgeon on Facebook and LinkedIn, and find us on Twitter at the handle at TheOptimisticC3. This episode was edited and produced by Madison Kay, audio engineer for The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Until next time, seek the good, pursue the true, and love the beautiful.